Just out of curiosity, uh, yesterday uh, in the middle of preparation, uh, I ran a Google search on the top uh, revenge movies uh, that Hollywood has produced. And uh, needless to say, I was a little bit shocked. Uh, I knew revenge movies uh, were a thing. Uh, I didn't know how big a thing. And so some of the first uh, articles that appeared there on this Google search was uh, the top 100 best re revenge films. And I thought, hmm, scroll down a little bit, and somebody else had the top 50 revenge films. Scroll down a little bit more, and you get articles on why revenge films are so huge and how much money Hollywood has made over the decades and what the all-time best revenge movies were all about. And I sat back in my seat and I thought to myself, oh boy, do I have my hands full in trying to preach this text tomorrow? Or as my wife likes to say every once in a while after she reviews the text during the course of the week, yeah, good luck with that one. <laughs> she literally says that out loud in my hearing. And she is for me. Good luck with that one. This is conformity to the pattern of this age. I won't name all the movies. Uh, I, of the 50, did we look at the one? that There was a list of 50. We had seen four of them. Um, so, you know, I got a little self-righteous thinking, well, I'm not that bad. Um, I'm sure most of the people that I'm going to be sharing with on Sunday are worse than I am. Only Moise is getting that right now. I don't know how many of these you've seen. But we had seen four out of the 50 over the course of our years. Revenge is a big deal. It wells up profoundly in our souls. Uh, we talk about it regularly, particularly in the sports world. Re revenge is being sought this Sunday when the Steelers play the Patriots because the Patriots have beaten the Steelers so many times that the Steelers want revenge. What are the Basels doing right now? Because I don't want to look at them down in the corner. But we use that language a lot. Robert Palmer wrote a song a generation or so ago. And in the song, there's a line that said, honest men know that revenge does not taste sweet. It's a great line. It's a great song. And I can remember whistling it every so often. Honest men know that revenge does not taste sweet. It's very natural to seek revenge when something bad has happened to you or to someone near you. The kingdom of God and followers of Jesus know very little about personal revenge. It's a tough passage to preach because if you're anything like me, almost everything inside of you is going to well up and even bristle at the thought of somebody getting away with something at your expense. I need to have the accounts settled now. I need a pound of flesh now. Doesn't the Bible teach, Pastor, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth? That if somebody gouges out my eye, I've got the right to gouge out their eye. Just so you know, that's not what the law was put in place for. The law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, is God's way of saying things will not escalate under his rule. That if you are wronged, you don't have the right to get more 
from the person who has wronged you. There will be justice. That's what the point is. So if somebody gouges out your eye, you don't have the right to cut off their arm. That's just too far. And tell me, do you ever get satisfied for just justice? When we're in full session and not doing the hybrid model that we're doing now in school, I have to be the judge and jury at least once a week from children from elementary school all the way up to junior high school who have had some sort of tete-a-tete either in the sanctuary or on the playground or in the lunchroom because things escalated. Well, he took a French fry, so you shoved him off the chair. He got off the chair and threw your lunchbox across the room, and then we were ready to go, all because of a French fry. You, you couldn't just take another French fry from, from him and call it even. Oh, no, no, no. Because even makes me a loser. And I don't know, Pastor, if you've looked lately, but I'm a winner. In order to overcome this mentality, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Transformation, it seems to me, takes place in one of two ways. Unwillingly or willingly. Let me give you an example of each. Today, as I've already told you, marks the one-year anniversary of our first live stream service due to the coronavirus, a pandemic that has, I think we could admit, unwillingly caused a great deal of transformation. I don't know about you, but my life has changed fairly significantly in the last year because of the coronavirus. And I will go on record in saying most of that transformation occurred unwillingly. It's not that I've necessarily disagreed with the government or the CDC or the people in authority. It's not that that I'm saying. Uh, what I am saying is that the ways that I've had to change out of my desire to, according to the scriptures, obey those who are in leadership over me, has caused me to change in ways that I would not have chosen. That's the unwilling way. A lot of parent, a lot of children feel that way about their parents, that they're transforming them unwillingly because of their discipline and having to do abominating things like chores. Most transformation, however, thank God, in the Christian life anyway, takes place willingly. I hope that's the case. In other words, we cooperate with God, the Holy Spirit, in our desire for and growth in holiness. Our salvation is all of God. We stand justified before a holy God all because of what he has done, choosing us from before the foundations of the earth report, poured, and even while we were in enmity toward God, sent his only son to regenerate us, that enabled us to act by faith into a salvation that is ours guaranteed from here until eternity. All of God. The growing into that, the putting on Christ, is a cooperative effort. Our sanctification 
if you please, work with the Holy Spirit willingly because you taste and see that the Lord is good and you want more of him and you want to grow in holiness and you want to be like Jesus Christ. You will willingly be transformed even if it's painful in that way as opposed to just being forced to transform. Today's passage is Romans 12, 17 to 21. Finishes the 12th chapter. I'm going to do one more in Romans 12, just kind of like a summary sermon next week, just to be sure we got it all down, because I I could do a dozen more sermons there. Today's passage is Romans 12, 17 to 21. And in this passage, we see and hear language of the mind and the will. It's an important point that I want you to understand as you put your outline together. This passage, Romans 12, 17 to 21, contains language of both the mind and the will. So what I'm going to argue here is that this is the kind of thing that a transformed mind and a transformed will does. Look at verse 17 with me. Give careful thought, there's the mind. Give careful thought to do, there's the will. What is honorable in the sight of all. That's my banner, that's my theme this morning. And then Paul's going to unpack the details of that for us. Give careful thought, that's the mind, to do, that's the will what is honorable in the sight of all. So it's not just thinking the right thing. It's not just doing the right thing. It's putting both of those things together. I'm going to give careful thought to this, and then I'm going to, through that thought process, act. I'm going to choose to act in this way, a way that is honorable to all of those around me. Remember, we talked about the relationships here, our relationship with God the vertical relationship, and then a horizontal relationship, our relationships to one another. And now we're talking more about the relationships with those who are outside the body of Christ, particularly our enemies, even our persecutors. So the transformed mind and will will choose two things in this text, and here's your little outline. In verses 17 and 18, the transformed mind and will will choose to be at peace with other image bearers. Verses 17 and 18, the transformed mind and will will choose to be at peace with other image bearers. Secondly, verses 19 and 20, the transformed transformed mind and will will choose to trust the justice of God. Those are the two points I want to make this morning, and I'll summarize in closing with verse 21. Okay? Transform mind and will chooses to be at peace with other image bearers. Verses 17 and 18. And secondly, in verses 19 and 20, the transformed mind and will will choose to trust the justice of God. Okay, let's look at the first one. You and I, insofar as we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds, will choose to be at peace with other image bearers, those created in the image of God. Paul has been describing the Christian ethic for us. We've been laying it out. Romans 12 is as rich as it gets. It's an ethic that includes outsiders. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Associate with the lowly. And now Paul takes the next step 
in describing the Christian's transformed way of living, living the way of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus modeled this kind of behavior for us. He chose to lay down his life. Nobody took it from him. He chose to lay down his life for you and for me. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the kingdom. Verses 17 and 18. Read them with me together. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable. Literally, the word is simply good. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. What is honorable in the sight of all, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, if you're anything like me, you're exhaling a little bit with verse 18. There's my out. Oh, that person's just intolerable. So, you know, Romans 12, 18, boom. It's not possible. I'm not making peace with that person. Woohoo! Thank God for Romans 12, 18, because if he had stopped at 12, 17, that would have been undoable. But now I got the escape hatch in Romans 12, 18. Uh, <clears throat> pro tip. Uh, no, you don't. The conformed to the world mind versus the Holy Spirit transformed mind. You're going to see this all throughout the passage. Repay. That's the conformed mind to the pattern of this age. Repay. Versus the transformed mind, seek what is honorable in the sight of all. Give thought to do that. Despite what our prevailing culture including these Hollywood movies that I referenced earlier, despite what our prevailing culture loudly preaches, settling the score is not an option for a Christ follower. Now, be honest with me. Are you wiggling yet? Because I am, again. You know the old Chinese proverb, to teach is to learn twice. Well, This is at least the second time where I've gone, hmm. Retaliation, settling the score, is not an option for a Christ follower. Not an option. Repaying evil with evil compounds evil. I don't like cliches as a rule, but the old one of two wrongs not making a right is right here. Or the mathematician that's still in me sees a negative plus a negative not equaling a positive. A negative plus a negative makes a bigger negative. Some of you are actually nodding yes, like you, you, like you know that about math, really? I don't mean to insult anybody, but that, that's shocking to me. Like, I just thought I'd put that in there and think, yeah, I don't have no idea what he's talking about, but it sounds good. Repaying evil with evil compounds evil, which is antithetical to the way of Christ in his community. Instead, and he pivots here several times, instead, we are called to give careful thought to the good and to do it. Now, you notice I'm inserting the word careful because the scriptures say, give thought. It's a pregnant word in the original language, and it carries very clearly the connotation of careful thought. This isn't just like glibly thinking about something. Yeah, okay, I gave it a thought, wham, I'm on it. No, this is stopping and looking at this. This is, this is premeditating, having a plan in place so that when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're not going to immediately try to settle the score. Yes, I am listening. 
You give careful thought, but you don't just stop at the thinking. You give careful thought and then do it. Giving careful thought, admittedly, is, is a win. A halfway win, because now the transformation has to take place not only in the mind, but also in the will. I'm going to willfully choose not to retaliate. Like I said to you last week, quoting another author, the Christian ought to step back rather than pay back. Because stepping back buys time and gives us opportunity to discern what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Stay with me, because if you're anything like me, you hear that faint, some, it might be louder for some of you, but for me, thankfully, it's at least a faint in the back of my mind that says, this is incredibly naive. You do live in New York City. You step back rather than pay back, you're going to die. To make it really dramatic. The English translations really struggle to get this word good out. Listen to how varied the words are. They're all in the same family, but listen to how varied they are so you can understand them. Okay? ESV obviously says honorable. That's a good word. And especially in a first century Middle Eastern culture, which as you hear me say from time to time, is an honor and shame culture. We live in a right and wrong culture not an honor and shame culture. There are some aspects of it, and there are some families, particularly from the Middle East or of, of Asian persuasion, they'll understand honor and shame much better than you and I will understand it, because we tend to think more right and wrong. They think honor and shame. So what, what, we're, what the translators here are doing is quite good. In the first century, you want to think about that which is honorable. You do not want to bring shame to somebody in your family or in your community or your town. So think and then do that which is honorable. Others, other translations say that which is respectful. Others say that which is right. Others, that which is noble. And the old King James said that which is honest. So you see these litany of words, all good ones, they're all in the same family, but you can see the struggle to try to get it across. You get the point. You're to think about the other and ask yourself, am I acting in an honorable way toward them? The good, I don't want to get overly philosophical here, but we have to ask the question, well, what is the good? What is honorable? And I think the category that's easy for us here to, to take as Christians is the idea of God's common grace. That God sends his reign and son on the righteous and the unrighteous. The fact that unbelieving people by the billions on this planet are living and breathing right now is a testimony to God's common grace the gifts that he gives to his image bearers, whether they deny him or not. So when we are in step with God's specific saving grace, which most, if not all of us in this room, know, 
We are also to understand that another aspect of God's grace is his common grace, the good gifts that he gives to those even who rebel against him. They never honor him as such. Nevertheless, he continues to allow them to prosper in business and in family and in neighborhood and God's common grace, that which creates the greatest human flourishing. So you and I ought to be thinking about that nagging neighbor in ways that would help them, enhance them, to flourish as God's image bearers, rather than building a higher fence to separate you from them. That's what it means to think honorably toward all. Psalm 34, 14 literally says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Jesus, maybe with that in the back of his mind, teaches, blessed are the peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9, for they'll be called sons of God. That was spoken by the Prince of Peace. Paul, as we're going to see shortly, God willing, in 1419 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And now he's talking to the body of Christ, and he's talking to conflicts in the body between the weak and the strong, between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul's saying, Time out, guys. He said, this isn't about one-upmanship. This isn't about your pound of flesh. He says, what we're to pursue is that which makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So ask yourself, as you make your contributions to this local assembly, ask yourself, is what I'm doing right now the pursuit of peace, shalom, wholeness, human flourishing? Is it upbuilding the body of Christ or is it tearing it down? Am I talking about the pastor? Am I talking about the person sitting next to me? Am I doing things that, at the end of the day, do not enhance our relationships with the Lord? I don't know about you, but um, I have been struggling for months now with the depths of the ongoing racism that's in this country, and I've spoken about it regularly. And now adding a layer to the racism that we've been struggling with for months now relative to our black and brown brothers and sisters, now this horrific event in this past week has moved our Asian American brothers and sisters to the forefront as well. And it's especially damning for people like you and me because this young man who committed this heinous act identifies just like you and I do with an evangelical Baptist church. And so the world out there that does not differentiate sees him in every one of us. I'm not trying to be provocative, I'm really not. But this is our battle. This is literally our battle. Hang the word evangelical on him and it's on every single one of us. This is why our battle to follow Jesus right now is a steep uphill climb. Because we cannot say, it's him, not me. 
And so I prayed for my Asian-American brothers and sisters that they would take this passage to heart because they're the victims here and God's calling upon them in their sorrow and in their anger not to retaliate. And I'm shaken. Because every unregenerate ounce of my body says, you've got to be kidding me. I'm to step back when eight of my countrymen have been gunned down. I'm in no position to look the Asian brothers and sisters in this room in the eye and say, Don't retaliate. But if I can lower my voice and get as gentle as I possibly can, it's what Jesus says to them. If you do not believe, if you do not believe that there is a God and that this God is one who keeps score and has promised to one day right every wrong, then you're going to take up arms and you're going to get justice as you define it. The Spirit of God gives us the capacity to say, I'm going to leave this in your hands, O God. And I'm not going to return evil for evil. And I'm going to ask you for strength to fight for justice until the day I die. You and I can do nothing less. I would be sinning against you if I did not include this in my preaching. You and I can't turn a page of the Bible without seeing God's justice on every page. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Yes, this does mean there will be circumstances that will be beyond your control. And that enemy will not be interested in any sort of truce. But it is not a convenient escape hatch. I tried. It didn't work. Oh, well.
the transformed mind and will chooses to be at peace with other image bearers. It immediately follows, secondly, that that same kind of person will choose to trust the justice of God. Rather than taking justice into our own hands, because we are never impartial, we're to choose to trust the justice of God. Beloved, beloved, never avenge yourselves. There's the conformed mind. But, here's the pivot, but here comes the transformed mind. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written in Deuteronomy 32, 35, the song of Moses, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If Hollywood took that to heart, there'd be next to no movie industry. But, only to simply prove my point how thrilling and exciting vengeance is. You can go home and Google the top 100 revenge movies of all time. This ought not to feed our own self-righteous sense of entitlement or our need for instant gratification It is the conformed to the pattern of this age versus transformed by the renewing of our minds. Conformity to the pattern of this age is going to avenge yourselves. You're going to go get your pound of flesh, come hell or high water. But the but, and as I've told you over the years, there's two ways of saying but in the original language. One is just your run-of-the-mill but, and then there's another one that's much more strong. And this is it here. If I can accentuate it, I've got, I've got the letters it italicized and emboldened on the print page here. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but instead, that's what he's doing, leave it to the wrath of God. It should rather, as the beloved of God, fill us with broken-hearted compassion that even our enemies would be reconciled to God, even as we were when we were God's enemies. You're able to do that, and I'm not saying that I'm standing here as the epitome of this, but when you and I are able to do something like this, you know that God is alive in your life. We need to hear the words of Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, if God wanted his vengeance, if he wanted his justice, he would have smote us the moment we sinned. Instead, He crushed his son. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, 
See, this is the ethic. We were enemies toward God, fists clenched, going right down the line with him and insisting that it be our way, our will be done. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? Paradoxically, by the death of his son, much more. Now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? That's the ethic that you and I have to pray for so that we will feel similarly toward those who would persecute us. We did it to Jesus, and he saved us. They do it to us. And what? I have literally prayed for myself and for you that instead of, I want it now, you and I would have that replaced with literally brokenhearted compassion because our persecutors, if they do not turn, will be punished for all of eternity. And be very, very careful if you're sitting here thinking right now, Let them go to hell. Christians care about human suffering, most especially about eternal suffering. If what you are thinking now was applied to you in your enmity toward Jesus, you would not be here right now. So I'm going to walk real carefully about my own hypocrisy that says, show me mercy, but I'll be damned if I'm going to show you mercy. To the contrary, here it is again, to the contrary, because... If you're like me, you're thinking, okay, at least neutrality. All right, at least I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bite down hard on this, and I'm going to step back, and I'm, I'm going to maintain neutrality. And Jesus is going to look at you, and he's going to say, no. Because the text doesn't call us to neutrality. The text calls us to take a step forward and to treat our, even our persecutors with care. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. The conform to the pattern of this age mind versus the transformed by the renewing of your mind battle is here in front of us again. Here is the mind and the will that have been, that are being transformed by the work of the Spirit to think God's thoughts after him, to take every thought captive, to set the mind on things that are above. To act in the Spirit is to choose not to act according to the flesh. In Romans 7, 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Romans 7, 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. 
to the contrary. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And now I have to ask the question as we close, why? Why? This passage, based on this passage, the Christian life can very easily be called the contrary life. Not this, but that. But I don't like the idea of being known only by what I oppose. Instead, our motive, our answer to the why question, must even have our enemy's good in mind. Jesus did. Jesus asked the Father to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. These who were crucifying him. Stephen, the early church's first martyr, said the same thing as they were pelting him with stones. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Why? Because Jesus and Stephen realized that if they did not repent, they were going to spend all of eternity separated from a holy God. And that ought to give none of us, none of us, comfort. Doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Yeah, I love that verse too, Pastor Mark. I love that because this is the way I do get the sideways revenge. I'm going to kill them with kindness. Don't let me, let me remind you that killing them with kindness is still killing them. And that's not exactly what that text means. A lot of people read that to mean, aha, okay, so I'm going to give my enemy something to eat if they're hungry, and I know that my motive for doing that is so that they will burn. Is not what the text says. And I can't imagine Jesus standing in our midst saying, yeah, that's what I want you to do. Here's, here's your side. Here's your out. Here's your fleshly release. Burn them. Our good deeds, it seems to me, positively, our good deeds are seen and will lead even our opponents to repentance and salvation. That's what 1 Peter 2.12 says. They will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But it also has a negative connotation, it seems to me as well, that short of repentance, our good deeds will serve as a precursor to their deserved judgment. When they stand before the Lord and they have thumbed their nose at our good deeds, they will stand as witnesses against them as they head off into a deserved judgment. But that ought not to give any one of us any sort of pleasure. No Christian should ever with seriousness utter out loud, directed at somebody else, God damn you. All of what God would have us learn from this transformative passage may be summed up in a single sentence. It is Romans 12, 21. And it is the bracket that closes verse 9 with 21. Do not be overcome by evil. And now for the third time, the but appears. Do not be overcome evil, but overcome evil with good.
This brackets verse 9 because verse 9 says, let love be genuine. The entire section from 9 to 21 is all about what genuine love is all about. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And he basically repeats it in verse 21. In other words, everything between 9 and 21 is about what genuine love is and how we are to do good instead of evil. Go back and read it and read it like that. And you'll see that every single line fits. This is what genuine love is. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As you hear me say almost every week, God doesn't command us to do anything. He doesn't enable us to do for him. We are capable in Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God, to overcome evil with good. It's proactive. It's transformed. I'm going to lead the confession and simply say to you, I'm still struggling to get here. I'm still struggling to get here. I do not look at you and with false pretense tell you, I got this nailed. I don't. But I want to because God is good and his commandments are good and enable us to become like his son. And I want to become like Jesus and I want you to become like Jesus. This is what Romans 8.29 is. You've been called to be conformed, not to the world, but to the image of Jesus. Jesus overcame evil with good so that you and I can do the exact same thing. Empowered by the Spirit, let us today decide, choose, Not to return evil for evil, but to overcome evil with good. Our Father, we need help. I find myself saying this almost every single week. And that's a good place to be, dependent upon you. We readily confess, Father, truthfully, that we, we, we want to have counsel with you and tell you, yeah, yeah, we live in Staten Island. Yeah, we live in New York City. This isn't going to work here. And we're reminded that, that Christians were in the midst of one of the greatest political machines in human history, first century Rome. And this is where it first landed. And what you commanded these Christians to do. Oh, dear God, please help us that we might become like Jesus and that in some mysterious way beyond our capacity even to fully understand our good works, our stepping back might indeed lead to peace, our own transformation and the transformation of those who would seek to harm us. We humble ourselves before you in the great name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.